Open, outspoken. It's ophthalmology off the grid. An honest look at controversial topics in the field. I'm Gary Wirtz. In today's healthcare environment, physicians are increasingly tasked with wearing multiple hats. Clinician, researcher, innovator, educator, manager, CEO, advocate, the list goes on. The landscape of medicine is changing and we too must adapt. Today's guest is someone who has embraced this brave new world, Dr. Jay Parekh. As we'll hear, Jay completed two residencies in internal medicine and then ophthalmology and then earned his MBA at Duke. Now he serves as both a practicing ophthalmologist and the vice president of global medical affairs for eye care and dermatology at Allergan. I sat down with Jay to talk about the business of medicine, what he has learned about the physician industry relationship in his new role, and why eye care providers must step outside the incubator and become part of the overall healthcare equation. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon. Welcome back to another episode of Ophthalmology Off the Grid, and I am so excited to have my good friend, Dr. Jay Parekh, uh, on with us tonight. And Jay and I have known each other for quite a while, and every time I'm with Jay, he makes me laugh, and he teaches me something. And it's usually something both about medicine and ophthalmology and business. And so that's why I love hanging out with Jay because it's always fun and it's always educational. And I thought it would be great to have him on tonight. So uh, with that preamble, Jay, thanks for spending some time with us. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. Before we dive in, I, I want to just just go through your background a little bit because I found it really interesting. Last time we were together, um, I always knew that you had an MBA and that uh, you went to Duke, which is a fantastic program, um, despite my feelings about their basketball program as a UK fan. Uh, we, ha- <laughs> we have to give them their, their due academically. That was, as I was looking through your, your, your academic history also, I realized that ophthalmology was not your first residency. Did I read that right? Uh, you're actually right. So it's initially... Uh, um... It goes back years and years when I was in medical school. I was actually in the combined medical program up right. at Boston University. My wife, Swathi, and I were dating at the time. She wanted to be an OBGYN, and I actually wanted to be a heart surgeon. And lo and behold, the two of us started thinking about life and where we had our preferences. And the two of us were very family-oriented. We came from strong family backgrounds. Uh, we're both first-generation and so she said, you know what, I'm going to go into ophthalmology. It's a great blend of surgery and medicine and long-term care and lasers and technology. And I'm like, you know what, I'm going to still stick with the heart, but I'm going to go into cardiology. So I actually ended up going into internal medicine, training in internal medicine, uh, where I was chief resident up in Boston. And I actually had a spot available and ready for me uh, in the Longwood area for, for cardiology. And during that year of my chief year, I actually ended up spending some time with uh, the folks over at the Jawson Clinic and did a mini diabetes fellowship. And I was looking to blow up some time. So everyone's like, you know what? You should meet this guy named Dr. Lloyd Aiello, who is a father of diabetic retinopathy, and spent some time with him to learn about, you know, how these diabetic patients um, develop retinopathy. So I spent a week with him. And he's like the nicest guy, kind as, as, as ever, and, and, uh, and a savant. And very wise. And he goes, Jay, with your background, you'd be a great retinologist. 
And next thing you know, I'm thinking about lifestyles and cardiology and inter interventional. And I really had a big focus on silent ischemia. And I'm like, you know what? I'll be finished up in medicine. I'll be chief in medicine and boarded up there. And whether I do it, go into the heart or the eyes, it's still the window to disease. And I came home one day and I told Swati, guess what? I'm uh, going to switch and go into ophthalmology. And she couldn't believe it. She was psyched for me. But she's like, don't tell my, our parents because they think that they're going to think you're frivolous. <laughs> so I matched. I matched at a great program. Um, at that time, it was tied academically between BU and Tufts. I was in the BU part of the program. And uh, that was a cornea top-heavy, cataract top-heavy program. And back then in retina, it was lights on, lights off. Right. And um, I, I'm just too much of a happy-go-lucky person, as you well know, um, and, and folks know in the industry. And I really had a, a falling in love with, with cornea. At that time, refractive surgery, transplants, and cataract surgery. We did a lot of tough cataracts at Boston City Hospital and the VA. And I ended up uh, relinquishing my desire to go into retina. And I actually went into cornea and I actually matched at the New York Eye and Ear and trained at a Mark Speaker, you know, years later. So it's been a great, a great trajectory for me since then. But um, yeah, so it's funny because, you know, I still ask about A1Cs and body mass indexes when people have undergone cancer therapies or whatever therapies we're talking about. I'll always get involved with uh, systemic care. It's really a passion of mine. And luckily enough for me, in terms of hospital leadership, uh, people respect me on both sides of the aisle. So I'm actually lucky to participate in a hospital level type of leadership outside the industry and outside of eye care. So it's really, um, it's been great for me. And because I was sort of young going to medical school, I'm now well enough to sort of be mature enough to have done both. Well, it's interesting, Jay, because my, my dad um, and my namesake, my uncle, Gary Wirtz, MD, they're both internists and they were partners yeah. together. So I, I was raised in a family of internists um, and I did a transitional year internship and I had four months of medicine wards. Um, it was a crazy, uh, it was actually kind of a pretty tough intern year as, as far as that goes. But um, I really took that opportunity to, um, you know, I realized it was the last chance I was going to have to practice um, comprehensive medicine. And I loved it. I really, um, I tried to get as much out of that as possible. And, and those are the things that you do, you still take with you. So, um, it's amazing how you, you don't waste any time when you're training yourself. Um, you could look at three years in internal medicine and think, oh, well, you know, it's not directly related, but I, I would imagine there are so many ways that that has served you well. And you've already mentioned some, you know, being involved in diabetic care, being involved in hospital leadership. You gain so much credibility um, having that broad training. So um, I think that is uh, to, to be commended. And I'm sure your patients have benefited tremendously from, from your breadth of knowledge. The practice has benefited. I still teach at the New York Eye at Mount Sinai. And it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. And I still feel very young. And, you know, I get bored every couple of years, quite frankly. <laughs> so, um, you know, years later, as you all know, uh, I ended up going to business school. And, and that was a lot of fun, too. So, you know what? You need to reinvent yourself like the iPhone does. You know, we're right now in the iPhone 10. Right. And by the time you and I are done this conversation, Gary, we'll have an iPhone 14. You got to so, yeah, keep on reinventing yeah, yourself, right? Exactly. So that's, a, that's actually a great um, segue. I mean, you seem like you have more open channels for um, activity than most people I know. And I know a lot of uh, hard hitter, you know, heavy hitters who, who, who are pretty productive. 
you were telling me about your first week at Duke when you decided in the midst of being done with ophthalmology residency, having a family, a lovely wife who I got to meet a few, uh, actually last month. Um, she, she's just fantastic. And you decided that I'm going to actually fit in a top level MBA. This is not like a, nothing against the online, you know, MBA. But this is a real MBA that you did. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. No, it, it really was. I mean, I was lucky enough to get on some programs in New York and uh, in Philadelphia, which are more geared towards finance. But I always wanted to be a leader. You know, uh, I was uh, chief resident in two specialties. I was captain of the baseball team. Uh, I've always led my whole life without asking to lead. People always look to me to lead and so forth. And lucky enough, you and I have been part of the Vanguard and folks like uh, there at Cedars Aspen and yeah. ACOS. It's been a lot of fun. But yeah, after several years of, of practicing, I again got the itch to do something more. And I always was thinking about going to business school. In fact, my brother was thinking about an MD, PhD, and he finished up orthopedic surgery down at, at Penn. And I told him what would be more practical would be getting an MBA. So he spent some time in Boston and then finished it up at Wharton in, in entrepreneurship. So we've always been entrepreneurs as a family. And for me, I actually wanted to get a not one of those healthcare MBAs, but an MBA that looked at general management, so finance, accounting, leadership, strategy. Um, you know, you and I are lucky enough to have some emotional intelligence, but I really wanted some fiscal intelligence right. to really help lead. And for me, that sort of catapulted me in the next rung of consulting and opportunities with the industry. Um, you know, like like you, Gary, you got to keep your your head down keep on working hard, and the opportunities come your way. So it was tough. I had a couple of kids. Um, I had a thriving practice. I had an academic practice. I was speaking a lot, doing consulting, you know, working on some phase fours and uh, some IITs. It was a really busy part of my life, but I'm like, you know, if I don't do it now, I'm never going to do it. Right. So I actually flew down uh, for three to four days every other weekend um, for two years, and then I had three two-week segments in a boot camp at Fuqua, and then I spent two weeks with my classmates in a wonderful trip, because uh, I'm a global guy like you. Um, we actually went to Korea, and we went to the demilitarized zone, and I spent a lot of time in China as well, and a couple of years later, I acted as a team physician, as an ambassador with Coach K at the Friendship Games in Dubai and China. So all these levels of engagement with reality around you and opportunities, it always comes back to serve you well. And it was tough. I had a really thick head of hair before business school. <laughs> and my first uh, weekend, I, I came across some really cool classmates. We had 7% that were physicians. The rest were folks from Google and Goldman Sachs and, and Pfizer and uh, a lot of really cool companies. And I'll never forget my first quiz. I got 7 out of 20. And I get a letter from the professor saying, you know what? Are you really sure you want to do this MBA program? This is not just writing a check and getting an MBA. This is a real program. And the, the failure rates, you know, up to 10, 10%. And I was, like, scared. I mean, here I do transplants in my sleep and ruptured globes and tough cataracts, you know, two-millimeter light perception pupils on Flomax. <laughs> I'm about to fail out of stats. Right. So I turned it on. I turned it on. And that, that was really the inflection point for me early on in my business school career. I turned it on. And my favorite classes were, you know, venture capital, private equity, finance, leadership and strategy in fact coach k taught some of the courses on leadership there and just things that I'll, I'll never forget the rest of my life and they serve me very well it's really you know it's about respect and dignity and leading and being parts of teams and 
Uh, it was great going through Harvard Business Review and going through recruiting. And I really realized, hey, I, I don't want to go to McKinsey or leave full-time medicine. I really love what I do, but I'm going to help. I'm going to be bigger than the MBA and make it part of what I do, not it part of what we do. Right. And it worked out really, really well for me. So um, I finished after two years, and then a couple of years later, I was elected to go on the board of the Alumni Council, more opportunities. And um, it was actually one of the best years of my life. Um, I missed four weddings, of which three of them were big Indian weddings, and I'll never, for, you know, never uh, be forgiven by aunts and uncles where I missed the weddings. But it's pretty brutal. Um, it was a, a huge time commitment. But again, I only thing I'd say is I should have done it earlier because it really changed the way the rest of my life. And it really was like for me, it was like undergoing refractive surgery. I was a minus four, and I became a plano after it. You and saw things the differently. Old pair of black, you saw you see things differently. Exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. So you use that pretty, I imagine, pretty immediately in your practice. You became pretty involved, as I understand, with your surgery center, um, and also on hospital leadership. What were what were some of the things maybe as you finished your MBA and you you started looking at things with fresh eyes? What are the things that you saw in your surgery center that were like the biggest no-brainers that just seemed to c completely missed by your physician colleagues maybe that didn't have the same business background? You know, we all took that Hippocratic oath, but time and time again, sometimes we lose a focus of why we're all here to take care of patients. Now, that may sound mushy, Gary, but at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. So really reviving that patient experience, the patient journey, you know, marketing towards that. Reducing overhead. It was funny because I was giving so many talks a year for myriad companies and products and disease management issues. And I would close the deck and, again, go off the podium and have dinner with, with colleagues and then talk about overhead management, whether it's in your practice or the surgery center or the hospital level. These are simple things like just shutting off the light and not ordering from certain vendors and ordering from other vendors and you know watching the books, watching that P&L. Right. Watching that PL every week. And, you know, there are a lot of uh, folks that you and I admire tremendously with who we think have a business sense because they have a lot large volumes. However, they do a very poor job. In fact, doctors in general do a very poor job in overhead management. So for me, you know, growing up in a value oriented family, um, my parents probably had more money than they, than they let on. So we always, you know, acted not frugally, but value oriented. So taking that from business school, learning some skill sets, and applying it to the real world, and calculating NPV, and doing a SWOT analysis, things that you learn in business school, right. that you don't need an MBA, usually MBA screw things up, but for <laughs> me, because I was still practicing, is the ability for me to really be part of leadership on a really quick level. I became head of R&D at the hospital level with all departments, all specialties, and I started, instead of just speaking, I started consulting for a lot of CEOs and SVPs and, and VPs that really wanted to know how to how to elevate their game and get to the next level of engagement with customers and KOLs. So it was a really, really fun time in my life for me the next several years, and I really enjoyed it. I sort of was someone that no one, no one ever thought about, but quickly I became part of some big ad boards. I was running ad boards, training programs, both in medical affairs and commercial, not only even domestically, but worldwide. And as I learned about that, and that skill set, I became pretty good at it. Just like doing a complex cataract. After a while, 
it becomes sort of uh, a no-brainer at 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. The, the thing I, I want to dive into a little bit is um, overhead management because that is one thing. Um, it just gets – it's so vitally important and it gets almost no airtime, I feel like, especially with regard to its level of, of importance. Uh, thankfully, my partner, Lance Ferguson – um, he just has a, an incredible mind. Um, he went to Duke as well. He's a Duke math major. So I'm surrounded by Duke uh, alums everywhere I turn, it seems. Uh, that's okay. Uh, great people. <laughs> um, regardless, he has driven home to me th- the whole concept of, uh, you know, of cost per case. Um, you know, every dollar you don't spend you know, in terms of overhead is a dollar that you get to either give to an employee uh, in a bonus, you get to give them uh, better wages. You get to, to hire better people and keep better people. Or at the end of the day, that dollar goes into your pocket. So you know you don't. The one thing you, that we know is that rates, reimbursement rates, are generally going to go down. But the way you fight against that is constantly um, trying to get your vendors to be competitive, to look at you know other quotes, looking at the cost of goods. You know, I did a cost of goods analysis. Uh, as part of you know just him training me uh, to look at you know the practice, so I actually went through and had to and it was good it was a very good exercise, but I went through every dollar our practice spent on fixed goods from you know you know Kleenex to uh, you know lysol wipes to alcohol pads the everything we purchased I put into a spreadsheet. And had to put together an analysis of where we could actually save some money uh, based on some spending habits um, of some of our staff. And it was, a, a, it was interesting that it was such a, relatively speaking, a very low amount that was purchased on, on cost of goods um, outside of, of you know, the uh, medical cost of goods. But it was still a really good habit to get into to look at every dollar where it's spent and, and see if you can find better ways to do that. Yeah, and every every practice needs one or two people that think like that. I, I'm not expecting every fellow and resident coming out of the at, of the Ioneer to do that, but you want to be part of a practice that knows exactly where the dollars are going. And at the end of the day, it may not go into your pockets; it may go back into the practice. Right. Um, you know, uh, I'm lucky to be part of a group where we we've co-founded, you know, Eye Care Consultants of New Jersey, and we took a 45 year old name, we changed the name, we changed the mojo, we changed the patient journey. Our overhead actually went up by 3% for a few months, and then we have it back down again. We've created value, more customers coming in. So, again, if you focus on the patient, okay, and talk about, you know, enhancing that those patient outcomes, but then you also worry on the back end and have your management looking at that, there's nothing better than that. That's just the perfect storm. It's the best combination, and you and I have friends across the country where their overheads are reach, reaching 65 70%. You know what that means, Gary? Think about that. If your overhead is 66%, that means two-thirds of the year you're working for your overhead. That's right. Two-thirds of the year. That's the right. latter third of the year, with all the storms and the hurricanes and Christmas and Hanukkah and Thanksgiving and Halloween, <laughs> patients don't show up, no shows, it's cold and so forth. Imagine that. So I, I would try to think that people keep their overheads – Anywhere from 48 to 56, 57 percent, nothing more than 60 percent. That's a healthy number in specialty medicine. And I've actually convinced a lot of folks to do that across the board without cutting value. It actually enhances value. And you got to think about the, the money of time, but the time of money. 
And if you think about those things in a simple way, like you'd raise your own household, you can't go wrong. Yeah. All right. I want to switch gears just a little bit and talk about your current role um, at Allergan. Um, I know that you were presented with an opportunity um, about, was it two years ago at this point? Uh, it's been actually close to three years. Okay. Time goes uh, pretty quickly. So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm the vice president of global medical affairs and the chief medical office uh, for both eye care and now uh, recently dermatology. Obviously, both fields have a lot of overlap, sure. same kind of customer base, same kind of surgeons. So it's just been a wonderful trajectory for me. And um, I've learned so much uh, in medical affairs and R&D and then cross-pollinating with our commercial colleagues, our marketing colleagues, business development. This is something that I always wanted to do. And yes, you know, I had to curtail all my other consulting engagements. I've been pure about what I'm doing. I am full-time here at the company. I'm lucky enough to still retain a good practice where other partners, and including uh, Swati, have really taken on more of a leadership role in the practice. So I still practice uh, a couple days a month. I still do a lot of surgery. I stopped doing transplants and LASIK. I'm pretty much now focused on cataracts, MIGs, ocular surface, and pretty much comprehensive eye care, especially with glaucoma. Sure. Um, but no, my, my trajectory at Allergan has been great for me. I've learned so much um, and really learned how to share my vision with really 15, 16,000 people, not only across the country, but across the world. So um, I'm just so happy of that where I'm at. And hopefully this trajectory for me continues as we continue to build out our portfolio, not only in eye care, but other aspects of healthcare. What do you think, since now you're a little bit on the other side of, of the industry physician relationship, what has surprised you, if anything? I think, and, and I guess the lead up to that is, you know, I'm running a startup and, or co, you know, co-running a startup. And I, in my journey, have realized that developing something uh, that seems like a good idea and seems really easy is actually really, really difficult. Um, it's doable, but you learn along the way that, man, everything is a lot harder than you think it would be. Um, what are the, some of the things you found uh, being on the other side of that relationship that maybe folks don't really appreciate? So by the way, I was in a similar spot like you actually, Gary, uh, several years ago. I was actually the co-founder for iTrans Technologies. We worked on nanoparticles. Uh, my partners and I, and there's four of us in the company, we were the servants, we were the kings and the queens. We did everything. <laughs> right. And uh, scalability was an issue. Then I was part of a company called OcuHub that was all looking at digital telemedicine and eye care. That worked out really too. But again, we, we realized that scalability was always uh, uh, something that kept us down. And, and I was also the chief medical officer for another company called 1-800-DOCTORS. And that too, scalability um, at times was a problem. Here at Allergan, that's not an issue. It's been a giant company, you know, 70 years in eye care, obviously aesthetics, and now eight, seven to eight different therapeutic areas across the board if you divvy things up. So I've learned so much in a cross-functional way with my colleagues. Um, you know, there's bureaucracy everywhere. There's bureaucracy at home. <laughs> there's bureaucracy <laughs> in our kids' schools. Right. There's bureaucracy at the surgery center. And it's bureaucracy at big companies. And at the end of the day, you have to be selfless. You have to smile. You have to have balance. You have to think about your, your colleagues and your customers and the myriad stakeholders. You take care of that, Gary. It all takes care of itself. So it's just uh, it's being part of a team. I didn't, I didn't grow up 
um, playing golf and tennis, which are great sports, but that's really about me. I, I, I grew up playing baseball and then in college playing some club football. And uh, that's really about the team and getting the end, you know, getting the ball in the end zone or you know, hitting a double to clear the bases in the eighth inning. Right. So it's been a lot of fun for me, and I've learned just so much from so many people. There's a lot of smart people in this company, a lot of assets that people don't tap into. And I'll, I'll visit the Irvine campuses and the Madison campuses and the campuses that we have uh, out in Asia as well as Marlowe. This has been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. You have a pretty unique perspective on the landscape, I think, of ophthalmology. So you can see it both from a clinician's point of view. You can see it from a corporate point of view in the industry. What threats do you think are out there? I mean, if you look at the you know the baby boom population that's exploding, um, you see providers that you know maybe we're getting busier and busier. What do you see on the landscape? Um, that either really excites you or maybe is concerning. Uh, you can take that either way you want. Well, I'm also on the supplier side at the hospital and, and in practice. So I'll tell you that, you know what, I'm incredibly bullish. I'm guarded, right? I think everyone should be guarded in general because at the end of the day, we don't know what next conflict may occur that may affect the markets and affect the assets of companies that are that are doing business with uh, physicians. Uh, in a great symbiosis called industry and the physician. Um, I'll tell you that, you know, in, in eye care, and again, the word is really eye care these days, right? It's really about ophthalmology and optometry. Right. Um, and everyone really taking care of patients. I think complacency and stagnation is the enemy of the future. And I think you've got to keep on invigorating yourself, keep on innovating, looking for the best outcomes for our patients in a really cost-controlled, value-oriented way with the best output possible. That's what we're seeing with reimbursement uh, at the level of heart failure and, and hip replacements. We're gonna see that in cataract surgery. We're gonna see that in, the, in, in glaucoma care. We may see that in retina care as well and how you manage patients that have wet AMD throughout the year, diabetic macular edema. Right. Um, so I think in general, any leader or leaders knows that you know, value orientation towards patient care, enhancing outcomes is the most important thing. I do see consolidation. Right now, everyone's jumping on the bandwagon, the private equity, and everyone wants to be in Wall Street and so forth. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. A lot of our mentors uh, have done that. And perhaps it's it's really akin to people that may be at that stage of life where they're thinking of slowing down or retiring or pseudo-retiring because the next step after surgical eye care is medical eye care. In fact, my old partner... Uh, practiced medical eye care for a good 10 years where he just pretty much was doing lasers and focusing on the ocular surface and glaucoma. Right. So I do see consolidation occurring. Private equity may be the answer for some people or not, but I definitely see the days of onesie, twosie groups really going by the wayside. I think we've got to be part of the equation at the hospital level. You know, folks have got to be part of grand rounds, part of the hospital boards, really impacting care because you know this, you know this really well. One insurance company at a blip second, right, can say, you know what, Dr. J or Dr. Wartz, you're no longer part of this panel. And now you lose 15, 20% of your patients, plus their relatives, plus their referrals. So right. I think you've got you've to be akin to what's going on in the market. We can't be in this incubator called eye care. Um, we can't just be operating at surgery centers. Of course, I think those are the, where you have the most efficient outcomes. You have to be omnipresent. You have to be all present. I think at the end of the day, 
There's enough envy towards eye care and dermatology and ENT neurology. We've always been part or outside of the healthcare equation. Well, most most of the healthcare equation's gone towards you know cancer care and orthopedics and heart. Now we're seeing hospitals saying, "Hey, we're going to buy this surgery center or private equity." Saying, "You know what? We're going to fuse a Dr. Worth practice and a Dr. J practice in Jersey and and control cost of goods." And the way to avoid that is to control your, your own cost of goods and right. your own destiny. Right. So I think you know, reading the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times. Having folks in our practice go to business school or a business course or a weekend course, staying attuned to the market, I think is incredibly, incredibly important, more so than ever. There was a time my partners made 3000 plus for cataract surgery. They saw X number of patients a week. They took two, three months vacation. Those, ga- those days are gone. Then we all shifted to high volume, high volume, high volume without uh, outcomes. Those days are gone. Right. Now looking at volume and outcomes and taking care of the patient the best way possible in a confined way. And I think population health is going to impact us in how we take care of cataract disease, diabetic retinopathy, glaucoma, even ocular surface disease. As long as you're in the payer system, whether it's Medicare or commercial care, you're going to be studied and analyzed in these ways. So let me ask you a couple of questions because you brought up some interesting points. You seem strongly in favor um, of ophthalmology sort of reintegrating or becoming more crucial, a, a more crucial integrated part of the overall healthcare equation. And that, that's something that I've seen, um, especially in my market, really the exact opposite. Ophthalmology is more on an island than it's ever been, um, at least in, in my area. And I, I don't know the, you know, what, what it's like in every different market, but are your feelings in that regard that if ophthalmology continues to isolate itself or, or becomes more isolated, it's, we will have a harder time advocating for our piece of the overall uh, pie in terms of um, you know, the, the uh, CMS valuations, um, et cetera, et cetera? Absolutely. At the end of the day, Gary, there's a finite number of dollars, and the hospital sees you as an asset. They don't see you as a pariah. And whether we have an ACO or post-ACO or an ACO-esque kind of system, no matter how busy you are in your, in your community, 5, 10 miles away from the hospital, at the end of the day, they're consolidating a bunch of internal medicine doctors and family practitioners and OBGYNs and so forth. Once it gets to a critical mass and control 10,000 lives, to control costs, if you're not controlling costs at their sites, they're going to hire their own ophthalmologist coming out of fellowship or residency. They're going to hire their own dermatologist. They're going to hire their own ENT. And some cousins of mine, by the way, have gotten those kind of jobs in those specialties that I've listed before. So to control your destiny for your group, I don't care how many years you've been there. It could be fourth generation in eye care. You've got to be part of the hospital equation. You've got to go to their you know, their golf charity events, go to their charity balls, be part of grand rounds. I'm not saying go there and see consults every day on dry eye for the rest of your life, but be <laughs> part of the equation because ophthalmologists in general are skewed and are seen as people that don't want to see patients, that don't want to see a herpes consult with herpetic neuralgia, or don't want to see anything but a ruptured globe, which they refer out to tertiary care facility anyway. We have to reverse that trend because if you don't, those same people will buck us out of the system and then you have loss of control. You do that, you may have your surgery center, you lose two or three contracts, you're out of the game. Interesting. That's a very interesting perspective. 
One other thing I want to dive into real quick, and, and don't want to spend too much time on this, but is really the private equity side of this. You know, I, I just see myself, if I'm a private equity guy and I'm looking at a practice, um, the last thing I think I would want would be a practice um, with people who are looking to gear down um, or, or maybe, um, you know, slow down in the latter parts of their career um, unless they have a rock solid replacement plan coming through. So if they've got a young guy or gal who is, uh, shows a lot of promise, then clearly um, that, that's, a, that's a pathway forward. But, you know, it, it seems also like those, those younger people may not have the same incentive to work as hard and perform um, perhaps as the, the founders did. And so it, to me, it just seems like there may be a little bit of a misalignment of stakeholders in this. And that's what I'm having a hard time wrapping my head around is that I'm hearing, you know, that this private equity uh, deal is great and, and people are getting great multiples and, you know, it sort of seems like almost too good to be true. But then I think, how are they going to add value uh, when they're already taking, you know, they're paying out a big, you know, payday to the owners. And then I assume they're trying to package things together, you know, consolidate, control costs of goods, um, you know, invest maybe in other, way, you know, growth areas. Um, but, you know, and then maybe flip that to someone who's larger five years down the road. So, you know, I just see, I see danger for some reason. I just, this, this whole thing, just, I sort of have that, that, you know, that caution flag in my mind. Is that wrong to think that way? You already answered your own question. So listen, private equity is a solution to what the market, the market dictated, right? So it's, again, it's about population health, controlling lives, having multiple practices. And you know what? You're right. They look to the principles. It's usually a very good day for the principles. It may be a good day for a practice if it's not very well oiled. But then for the rest of the folks who are still 5, 7, 8, 10, 15 years out of fellowship or residency, it, there's no change. There may be loss of control. There may be loss of destiny. And I would say for some people, it's like, it's like teeth whitening. It's for some people. It's not for everyone. <laughs> it's not for everyone, right? right? It's not for everyone, no matter what Groupon says. It's not for everyone. So I do think, and I love private equity back in business school, and a couple of the companies that actually contacted me for my inside advice on how to run things better and so forth. But at the end of the day, when you have consolidation, you are marrying two different kind of groups, two different thought bases. Two what you may do is Two cultures. You may reduce um, some of those costs up front and see how it, how it pans out the next four to five years. But then what happens is that's going to be flipped very quickly. So I, I know a lot of friends that have done it, and I'm very happy they've done it. I think it's a great for them later on in their you know third, fourth decade of practice. But for for the rest of us that are in our first or second decade of practice, I really think you have to be very cautious. I'm not going to see it's it's alarming, but you got to be very cautious about it. And I know in cardiology practices across the country and in GI practices, this model has not necessarily worked. Um, and oftentimes things go awry after three to five years. Let's see what happens right now in eye care. I am guarded about it, but I definitely embrace it. I think there is a role for it in the market. And at the end of the day, you can want what you want. I can want what I want. But the market dictates exactly, you know, Gary, what happens. And that's what we'll see in three, four years. We'll know which ones have succeeded, which ones have not. And you go to all these big meetings. You talk to our friends that have been part of it. And maybe for the principles, it worked out well. But for the rest, they'll say yes. They've got to see more patients, see less patients, have controlled hours, 
And it is it is somewhat loss of control. But that said, a lot of doctors now don't want that control. They don't want to worry about overhead management. They don't want to worry about marketing and hiring and firing. So for some people, it's not a bad avenue. For some people, hospital employment is not a bad avenue. There are hospitals now employing ophthalmologists to be part of their two, three-person group to take care of 100,000 patients for population health. So this is what's happening in our specialty. We need to embrace it. These solutions aren't for everyone, but they're certainly for some people's, some decades of ophthalmic surgeons that have been doing this for years that just want to really play around for five more years but have someone else do it better for them. So I do embrace it, but I think for someone like you or me, uh, I'd resist the temptation. All right, so I'm going to ask you one more uh, one more question, and uh, you can ask, answer it however you want. But the common theme I, I I like to look at mega trends and themes, and one thing that sort of has bothered me. This is like true confessional time now, but one thing <laughs> that's kind of bothered me is I feel like in many ways uh, the physician is the little guy, and the little guy seems to always be controlled by the powers that be, and the powers that be are either the government, so CMS, sets rates, or the insurance panels determine whether you can be on the panel or not, or it's the private equity guys who come in, purchase things, and then tell you how things are going to be. Where and when and how do physicians regain control of their own destiny? I mean, is, are we just, is it, is the horse out of the barn? I mean, are, are physicians... No, no, Gary. I mean, um, I think, uh, yes, there has been lost control overall systemically, not just for ophthalmologists or you know, optometrists for that matter, and all eye care professionals. But in general, medicine now is one-nth of the equation. Before it was the equation, it was the primary variable. Now, as providers, we're just one-nth because in general, we have not done a very good job in controlling costs. We've not done a very good job as a society at looking at outcomes. And I think there's entropy in the market. I think we have to work on a local level, as I told you before, get back to the hospital, go on the board, you know, give to the hospital at the golf events and the charitable events, be part of the equation, go back to your state societies to help them, you know, uh, prevent some of the things that are coming down the pike. And going back to Ascaris or Academy or ASRS and voicing an opinion. I think you part, part of your destiny is to be part of the equation, is to be part of the leadership. And folks like you and myself and others that around us that are doing that. And I think that's what you've got to do because otherwise it's very fatalistic and it's incredibly guarded. And um, when I go and teach the residents uh, in New York, I still get a glimmer of hope that, the, yes, you know, we took care of a corneal uh, ulcer today or acanthamoeic keratitis. People are always going to need us. Right. Robots will not replace us. Um, all that's going to be replaced is our power. And as long as you have dignity and integrity – and balance with our lives. And I think balance is very important. All of us went into eye care to have that balanced life. And I, and I saw your your beautiful family and pictures as well as we talked about it in December at that great wedding in Florida um, where you met Swati and myself. Um, I think it's really important for us to keep that balance. But no, we have to engage our, our congressmen, our congresswomen, uh, our leaders, our leaders in our own specialty, and really um, – really be part of the equation. That's, that's all I can tell you. And for that reason, I'm guardedly bullish, um, but not overly bullish. 
Got it. Jay, thank you so much for spending some time with me tonight. I love, like I said at the beginning, I always laugh, I always learn something, and uh, that has definitely happened tonight. So thank you so much for coming on the program. Gary, thanks for having me. From reimbursement to consolidation to population health, the practice of ophthalmology is undeniably changing. As Jay mentions, ophthalmologists will increasingly be held accountable for providing the best outcomes in a cost-controlled, value-oriented way. And I think he makes a good case for the importance of evaluating and evolving the role we play in the overall healthcare equation. Taking an active rather than passive role helps ensure that our common goal to provide the best possible care for our patients remains at the top of the agenda. So once again, this has been Ophthalmology Off the Grid with Dr. Gary Wirtz. For more episodes like this, visit itube.net slash podcast and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Catch you next time. Ophthalmology Off the Grid is an independent podcast supported with advertising by Alcon.